When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Are you thinking of flying? Deciding if you should bring your family on a plane? Just how safe is it to fly right now in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic? I'm Poppy Harlow, and in a special episode of CNN's Boss Files, Delta Airlines CEO Ed Bastian joins me to talk about the state of the airline industry. In a remarkably candid conversation, he calls for a federal mask mandate on all commercial planes. He tells me why he refuses to sell middle seats, even though most of his competitors are, and Delta's losing $30 million a day, and on race and diversity tells me there is so much more he needs to do to help advance black employees at Delta. Here's our exclusive interview. Ed Bastian, thank you so much for being here. Happy to be with you, Poppy. All right. So, I mean, so much has changed in just two weeks. Give us an overview right now. What is the state of the airline industry today? Well, we just finished the July 4th holiday and we had a pretty nice demand pickup for the 4th of July. Delta, we've been pretty conservative and cautious about the capacity we've added since the April lows. Uh, today, we're flying a schedule that's about down 30%, or excuse me, it's 30% of what it ought to be at this time of year. But that's about twice where we were just a few months ago. So demand's picking up, but in the post Uh, July 4th period, there's no question that the spread of the virus, as well as all the quarantine measures that have gone into place, have started to pull back the demand expectations. So I'd say we're in in a kind of a cautious pause right now in terms of any additional growth. You, you in fact, sent a memo, uh, I believe, today or yesterday to employees that that said you're basically not going to add more flights right now. That's how much things have changed. We're adding some in August, but not as many as we thought. Uh, in August, we originally were thinking we we're going to add about a thousand more flights back, uh, but today it's probably half, or maybe even a little less than half of August. And then we we will watch and see how the demand uh, unfolds, how the virus is is moving. Are your bookings, future bookings, tumbling the way United said just on Monday? Theirs are. I think the industry is all seeing the same the same effect. I, I wouldn't say bookings are tumbling. I, I would say bookings have stalled. Uh, we came through in June, week after week, we're seeing some pretty nice demand pickup as economies were opening up, particularly in the South. But then as you've seen the spread of the virus pick up, uh, those same bookings have stalled. So we're not tumbling, but we're just not picking up at the same pace. I was astonished to hear you say, Ed, that, you know, just a matter of weeks ago, Delta was losing $100 million a day. Are you, are you still losing money on every single flight? We are losing money on every single flight, and we've been focused on reducing the cash burn for the company. Uh, the $100 million a day you referenced was at the start of the pandemic, so that was in the early weeks in March. 
Uh, we are now at a point where in the month of June, we're expecting that daily cash burn to come in around $30 million a day. So pretty significant reduction of the overall level of, of, of cash burn. But we're, we're at a point now where we're a bit uh, cautious as to what the next leg down in terms of reducing that burn will come from. It's really got to be higher demand because we've got our cost in a pretty good way. We have over 50% of our operating costs that we've already eliminated from the yeah. business. So we really have to, to continue to improve that cash burn number. So one of the huge questions that I know has to be on your mind all the time is your is your employees. I mean, you've got 90,000 folks that that rely on you guys for their income, for their for their livelihood. We just heard United uh, warn 45 percent of their frontline workers. That's 36,000 workers that they could lose their job come October 1st. Is is Delta facing the same scenario in terms of potential layoffs? We are facing potential layoffs, but not nearly the level that United uh, communicated. I'm not familiar with what United's thinking there is. One of the things that's different about Delta is that we've done a lot of work with our employees to reduce costs all through the pandemic. So throughout this, these last four months, we've had almost 40,000 of our people, so close to half of our staff, have taken voluntary uh, leaves uh, for the month with no pay at all, just voluntary uh, unpaid leaves. And that's enabled us to really reduce one of the reasons why that cash burn has come down so so far. Uh, the second thing we're doing is we got an early retirement offer with our employees that's still open. And you know, we're expecting, we already know, there's thousands of employees have signed up to take that uh, offer. And as a result of that, we're looking at uh, you know, probably a much lower uh, impact number uh, come October 1, and our goal is to try to eliminate, not have any furloughs. But realistically, uh, uh, certainly in, in certain of our groups may be facing some. Right. And I, I know that you did send a letter to notice to about 2,500 Delta pilots at the end of June saying, look, this could be this could be coming. Um, but you say there is still a glimmer of hope, a scenario where maybe with the voluntary, uh, you know, early retirements, et cetera, is there a chance at this point maybe you don't have to lay anyone off in the fall? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a real chance of that happening. Uh, we're trying to be as creative and collaborative with our employees as we can. Uh, we're spreading work around. We're reducing hours of work. Uh, we're implementing job sharing. Uh, we're looking at if we might have an overage in one group. If they could work uh, in a different group, say in reservations, for example, if you can move from the airports or one of our in-flight service jobs and, and, and learn and train up as a reservation agent for, for a period of time. So we have a lot of flexibility and a lot of creativity that we're deploying to try to you know, eliminate any need to furlough. Uh, we're working with the pilots union to the same extent that we could try to reduce the number of hours each of the pilots uh, receive uh, in, in turn for saving a lot more jobs. We wish you guys a lot of luck uh, because it is it is a scary time going forward. Let's talk about what yeah. it's like to fly right now. Delta has mandated masks for anyone who wants to get on your planes, but the federal government isn't, right? They're just recommending it. How hard does that make your job, right? Do you want the federal government to mandate masks on all commercial airlines? It would certainly help, and I, I do believe that would be a, be a good uh, action. I, I don't expect it to happen, though. 
so what the, the federal government has done is left it up to each airline to make their own decisions. So masks are mandated on Delta. And uh, for any customer uh, who's not wearing a mask will not gain access to the airplane. They need to be wearing a mask to board. And while you're on board, while well, certainly if you, if you need for something to drink or something to eat, there's, there's limited periods you can take your mask off. Uh, but if a customer does not choose to keep their mask on, uh, that customer is going to lose their right to fly Delta for a period of time. And we, we, we warned them several times uh, during the flight. We have had some uh, customers we've had to put on, on those lists. But generally speaking, compliance is pretty good. So people who, who refuse to wear their masks, you know, essentially their punishment is you can't fly Delta again for, for a while, at least. Yeah. Unless there's a good medical reason, which has to be documented, and we need to understand uh, ahead of time. But for 99.9% of our customers, really, it's it's been, you know, we, we do have some people that take the mask off, and when our flight attendants ask them to put it back on, they do, they're compliant, just like wearing a seatbelt. Uh, you know, if you, don't, if you refuse to wear a seatbelt, you're going to lose your right to fly Delta. If you want to stand during, insist on standing during takeoff, you're not going to fly again on Delta. Those types of, those types of maneuvers. This, this is a, another safety feature that we need to, we need to uh, ensure our customers are complying with. And while the mask feature is new, I think people are learning the, the importance of it as we go forward. I'm interested, Ed. I mean, you, it, it sounds like a federal mandate would help so much in terms of requiring masks. Have you called the White House? Have you called the administration and asked them to do this? Because you say, I don't think it's going to happen, and I wonder why you say that. Well, it's my, uh, we, we have, we've had those discussions with the White House. Uh, you know, the industry collectively uh, hasn't given a, a strong point of view on it. At Delta, I, I feel strongly about that, but I'm not sure some of my peers at other airlines feel the same way. So as a practical matter, I'm not sure it's going to happen, but you know, we're, we're, uh, we're not facing a major issue with our customers around compliance. Uh, when we ask our customers to wear their mask, not only to safeguard themselves, but just as importantly, safeguard others, they, they, they're, they're respectful of it. And I think as you see in the country, the uh, cities, I know in Atlanta, the mayor of Atlanta just yesterday uh, is requiring masks in the cities. Uh, as you move around the country and find masks being required as in any public setting, it's only natural you'd, you'd uh, wear a mask on an airplane. You don't see anyone. I mean, I don't see anyone here in New York City that is not wearing a mask. It has already become such a normal part of the day. It's not the same everywhere, though. All right, Ed, let's talk middle seats. Um, you know, no one used to like to sit in middle seats, and now everyone is talking about middle seats on airlines. Delta's promising flyers right now, I know because I, I get your emails as a Delta flyer, uh, that you will always have an, right now an empty seat next to you. Can you help me understand exactly what that means? Does that mean under no circumstance will the middle seat be booked? That's correct. Uh, so we've announced through the end of September that we're going to cap our load factors at 60%. So the plane will not carry more than 60% of the customers on board the plane and that we are going to block all middle seats on those planes. And as a result of that, every customer will have the seat next to them open. Uh, I think it, I think the, the, the space and the distance on board the planes are really important in terms of uh, f people feeling safe and comfortable 
um, uh, with our with our product, we see it in the customer surveys. Our customers are telling us it's a really important uh, safety protocol that they appreciate. And what I've said is once we get past September 30th, we'll see where the virus is. We'll see what the man looks like. But we will continue to block middle seats past September 30th. We just haven't uh, set, a, set a, a long range date on that yet. Wow. But that, that's news that you'll block it past September 30th. Because, Ed, you know what United's saying. The head of PR at United says, quote, when it comes to blocking middle seats, that's a PR strategy, not a safety strategy. Is it a PR strategy? I, I think it's a really important safety feature. And all the medical experts, and we have, we have the Mayo Clinic, we're working down here in Atlanta with Emory. Uh, we've got a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of counsel on this that indicates why you can't logistically expect airplanes to only uh, or customers to sit six feet apart on planes distance matters space matters the fewer people you have on board matters in terms of restoring confidence and uh, there's no question the fewer people you have on the plane the safer it's going to be that's 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 simple math so your message to united is i mean are they putting their flyers at risk i i'm, I'm just providing my message to delta customers mm. So in first class, oftentimes there's two seats, not three. Does that mean in first class as well, no one's next to one another? That's right. That's right. In first class, we blocked it at 50 percent. Okay. Exactly. So uh, Democratic Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon, I'm sure you saw this. He tweeted a picture of himself on a flight recently. It was on American Airlines, and it was a really full flight. And he tweeted, how many Americans will die because you fill middle seats with your customers shoulder to shoulder, hour after hour? This is incredibly irresponsible, he writes. I wonder if you think he's right. And if you do, are you supportive of the legislation he says he is going to propose that would actually ban the sale of middle seats for all carriers during this pandemic? You know, I don't think middle seat blocking alone is the safety protocol that we need to look at. I think you have to look at all of the layers of protection that we've added. We've got electrostatic fogging. We fog every single flight before every flight takes off uh, completely uh, every single day. We have implemented you know, changes in the boarding procedures. We board from the back to the front. Mm-hmm. We have you know, implemented uh, other, you know, the, the filtration systems aboard our planes, the HEPA filters, we've increased the frequency of changing those out and the quality of the air that we measure is as pure as any air. It's, it's purer than the air you and I are breathing in our respective offices or homes on board the plane. So I think you have to look at the collective and the masks, the collective uh, components of the, of the experience to evaluate safety. I'd say middle seat blocking is an important part of that. I don't think in in and of itself, any one of these, though, is the is a silver bullet. But is legislating it? I mean, if you think it's so important for safety, would you support legislation that blocks any carrier from selling middle seats in the middle of this pandemic? I think we're an industry that's got a lot of regulation. So I'm not an advocate for adding regulation at this point. But I think I think carriers will have to be responsible to their employees and to their customers in the messages. And I can tell you what the customers of Delta are saying is that they really appreciate yeah. that the middle seats are being yeah. blocked on Delta. Are my tickets on Delta, you know, a year from now going to cost a lot more because of the financial pain you guys are experiencing now? Should people expect that? I don't think so. I, I think bringing customers back. We talk a lot about the safety aspect of it and the confidence. And certainly there's a price component as well. And today you will find there's great bargains uh, to travel. 
And I think as you look out the next one to two years, there's still going to be a lot of price opportunities for consumers to get great bargains. Uh, we've got a lot of planes on the ground that we're looking to start to get back up in the air. And as you think about bringing all that supply back up in the next year or two, you know, it's going to, there's, there's a price to bringing it back up and it's going to be better, uh, better fares for consumers, no question. How much are, are you flying right now, Ed? I am flying just about every week. And, it, I, and I've got to tell you, it's a great experience. It really is. Uh, it's, it's one that uh, it's different, uh, one that I think people, it takes them a, a flight or two to get accustomed to the new protocols. But the reality, and our customers, by the way, tell us in all our surveys, it's a much better experience than anything they've seen in the past. Mm. I wonder about Delta employees. Um, are you, are, are Delta employees, corporate employees, free to fly anytime? Are you under sort of what a lot of us are under, which is, you know, only for really, really necessary work events? We, we have been open throughout the entire pandemic. We've, we've been flying an essential schedule. And no, we, we, our, our employees are not on any travel restrictions. I think that'd be really bad for our, for our business. That said, uh, in our corporate offices, for example, we are, we are closed. We have we're open maybe ten to fifteen percent of the employees. So we've we've implemented the right safeguards to keep people home. But with respect to uh, restricting travel, no, we've put no no travel restrictions in place. So Delta, all, all the big carriers received money uh, from the government through the CARES Act at the beginning of this pandemic. Um, for people who don't know what the CARES Act is, it's the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act. For Delta, it was $5.4 billion, which is a, basically a taxpayer-funded government loan. You have now, just this week, signed a letter uh, of intent to receive additional government funding through that. H how much do you think Delta is going to need? Well, the, the CARES Act, as you mentioned, had two, two parts. The first part was, was really a Worker Protection Act, so all the money that we we received back in April is going to pay our workers to stay in place for the next six months. And so that's money that's basically going directly to employees. Uh, the second piece is would be more a part of the capital structure of the company. We've not made a decision to take the money. We've signed a, a term sheet with the Treasury Department to hold our opportunity to make a decision to the end of September. Uh, so we'll, we'll decide in the next couple months, but we haven't made that decision yet. You might not need it? We might not need it. Okay. The Mayo Clinic. I'm from Minnesota, so home, home state uh, hospital yeah. there. I'd like to know more about the agreement you have and the work you're doing with the Mayo Clinic, because from what I've read, it sounds like they're helping guide your medical decisions going forward. And as I laid out at the beginning, I mean, you guys are making really different decisions than your biggest competitors in terms of middle seats, et cetera. What has the Mayo Clinic been, been telling you to do? What have you learned from them? So as you know well, it's, they're a renowned uh, clinic of medical expertise, and they've been advising us on a lot of our safety protocols and how to protect our customers, how to protect our employees during the experience. But we've also significantly expanded the relationship uh, to one now of testing. So we're in the process of testing all 90,000 of our employees, both for the active virus as well as the antibody, to understand where each of our employees sit relative to the risk pendulum for themselves individually. And the Mayo is helping administer that, those tests along with Quest uh, Diagnostics. But even more important than that, the Mayo is taking the data that we're developing and advising on retesting strategies, 
what to do with more vulnerable populations, how to protect them even better, and how to be strategic about keeping our employees safe through this epidemic. And as we keep our employees safe, by definition, we're also going to be keeping our customers safe. You've said, Ed, uh, look, we as an airline don't have a chief medical officer. And I know you're not a doctor. I know you say you're going to hire a chief medical officer after all of this. I, I, I bet a lot of companies will. But given that, and given that you're not a physician yourself, who do you listen to for medical advice when it comes to making the decisions for Delta? Do you listen to Dr. Fauci? Do you listen to President Trump? I, I listen to all members of the medical community. I've got active dialogue with Dr. Faruja, for example, who is the CEO of the Mayo uh, Clinic. I've, I speak to uh, Dr. Del Rio uh, down here at Emory in Atlanta, who's a who's a big uh, Delta loyalist. Uh, I've talked to Dr. Gottlieb. I've talked to all of the all of the medical experts across this uh, this region, uh, in this country, to try to get the best insights and to to coalesce the findings and, and try to figure out not just what we can be doing to keep people safe, but to get a sense for where the business is going to be headed. Because we're in a business of having to make plans for the future, how many planes to put out in the future, you know, how many, how, what, what staffing levels do I need to uh, anticipate in knowing what the expectations are around the virus and the impact of the virus by region helps us inform us on some of those decisions as well. Does it trouble you, though, how political some of this has gotten, Ed, that, you know, discussions over masks have become political, that there's, you know, vocal disagreement between the president contradicting what Dr. Fauci says? I mean, I know it confuses many Americans. I wonder what it's like for you as a business leader. Well, I think the one of the challenges we're facing is that we've got a pandemic going on in, a, in an important election cycle. And as a result of that, you know, everything, it seems these days are politicized, not just the pandemic, but the challenges around social injustice and uh, economic inequality. And the pandemic is no different than, than those other you know, significant challenges that we're all facing. So I'm frustrated. I think I can speak for you know, corporate America. We're all frustrated with, with the politicization of safeguarding uh, the health and well-being of our employees as well as our customers. But... The reality is we just have to make our own decisions as business leaders. Back to uh, whether or not you guys may take another government loan uh, from the CARES Act. If you decide to do that, I wonder if you will also commit to no layoffs for a longer period of time. Because the first tranche of money was conditional, right? You guys couldn't lay right. anyone off or furlough anyone until September 30th. If you take additional government money, we don't know what the conditions will be on that. It's a little bit different. But obviously, you know, it wouldn't sit well with people to then have job cuts. Where's your head on that? I think that's right. I think there's a sensitivity that if you take the government, the second tranche, and then you turn around and use that money to fund a, a fairly significant reduction in staff, there, that would be uh, um, something that that airline would have to explain, uh, both to the government as well as to its employees and community. Uh, we haven't we haven't decided whether to take it or not. As I mentioned, there are some restrictions in the second tranche that employment is expected to be maintained uh, to the extent possible at a 90 percent threshold for the next six months. Mm -hmm. That I think takes you into March. Um, but that will be one of the considerations that we have to think about. Yeah, certainly. All right. So uh, Warren Buffett, 
You know him well. I've interviewed him many times, and he was a big investor in the airlines, including you guys. And, and earlier this year, he sold off his stakes. But I, I, I'm interested in what he said and what you think about that. He said, I don't know if two to three years from now that as many people will fly as many passenger miles as they did last year. You've got too many planes. Do you think he's right? I think he is right. I think it's going to take us two to three years as an industry to find that new level of normal. Uh, we're flying at scale, uh, both for business as well as for leisure, on a global basis uh, comes about. And I, I, I've said many times myself, not only is it going to take two to three years, but this industry will be smaller uh, when we get there to that new level of normal. I think there's a portion of business travel that is inefficient today that probably will not come back. I think there's a certain level of international travel, travel and traffic that's, that's going to be reduced. Certainly, it's lagging the domestic uh, return of travel. So I, I do think uh, Warren was right on that. Uh, I'm still optimistic about the future. I think we'll, we'll find uh, a new normal that will be a more resilient normal and a better normal for Delta. But it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a tough two to three years. It's going to be very choppy. And, and given that, Ed, do you think it's a real possibility that we're sitting here a year from now and one of the major U.S. airlines is no longer in existence, goes under? I don't see that happening. I, I, I see all the major airlines getting through this. Uh, if your question is, is there a risk of a restructuring or bankruptcy? I'm, I'm sure there is. I don't, I'm not uh, forecasting that. Uh, it really depends on what happens on the demand side. If, if we stay at a, uh, a suppressed demand level for an extended period, absolutely. But, but that's something that we, you know, it'd be too hard to forecast at this junction. We're still relatively early innings yeah. of the pandemic. But I think all the airlines are doing their best to save costs, to raise capital, to forestall the risk of bankruptcy. But on the other hand, you see it happening around the world. You see a lot of international airlines yeah, that Air have been Mexico. forced. Air Mexico, which, which is one that we've invested in, uh, was, was forced down that path. And I think the common denominator there was, was in, in, area, in countries where the government played an active support role on the front end, as the U.S. administration did. Uh, we were able yeah. to do all that. And it gives, it, it's bought us six months of time to, to, to settle down and, and try to make some decisions about the future. Uh, where you don't have that government support, they, they simply haven't had the time. Before we move on to, to another uh, topic and in terms of race relations and social justice, something you've been very outspoken on, I just want to ask about what it's like to run a company in a moment like this. I mean, you have you help lead through 9-11. You have navigated a lot of challenges in the industry. But you've said when things are going well, we actually get a little bit uncomfortable. And you've talked about crises being defining moments. How do you think this crisis will define Delta? This, this will be the crisis that will define Delta. Um, it, it is a uh, crisis, as you mentioned, 9-11 happened. We thought at that time that was going to be the defining moment for our industry. And certainly the, the recession a decade ago was another defining moment. But this is the 9-11, the, the global recession, and, and then some all, all added together. And my uh, uh, Frank Blake, who's our chairman, uh, told me at the start of this, uh, to remember that crises don't uh, build character, which people tend to think. Uh, crises reveal character, and they reveal who you are. Yeah. And, I, and yeah. fewer words have not been said to me throughout this entire last four months. 
and it's helped us reveal the character of Delta. It's helped us uh, stay committed to those brand values, those promises. You know, the, why are we blocking the, the middle seats? We're blocking the middle seats because we care about our customers and our employees and their safety and their comfort uh, during a very difficult, challenging time. Uh, it, it, how we treat our employees coming through this, if we can avoid layoffs, for example, it'd be huge in terms of you know, building and, and redefining the character. And if you can do that when, when others couldn't, you know, all the more so. So we have uh, a real opportunity to get through this crisis as a, as a more resilient airline. I think resiliency is going to be something that's going to be redefined across corporate America, across our society. Uh, resiliency, both financially, our, our health, our, our, the stability of, the, of our business practices and business models, all of those will be defined as we, as we get through the next year. There are some planes, Ed, that you guys are not going to bring back. I believe I heard you talking about the DC-9, some of the older jets. Uh, one of the things that I think is interesting is that you're the only major U.S. carrier that didn't sign on to buy Boeing 737 MAX, and that has been advantageous for you guys given, given what they have gone through. But what about now with the changes and the testing? Would you feel comfortable adding a 737 MAX to Delta's fleet? Absolutely. You know, we, 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 uh, we were never uh, adverse to the 737 MAX. And the reason we did not buy it, it didn't have anything to do with the safety of the airplane. It really had to do with we like the, uh, the Airbus product better. Um, but at some point in time, could, we, could I see Delta flying the MAX? Absolutely, I think that's a possibility. Uh, we have no, no, nothing in the, in the works right now, but I, th I think it's gonna be a great product once it gets through the final level of testing. More from my conversation with Delta Airlines CEO, Ed Bastian, after the break. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. This week on The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Kara Swisher and I spoke before a live audience of students and professors at the Sign Institute of Policy and Politics at American University. The former tech reporter for The Wall Street Journal is on a massive book tour. Her memoir is titled Burn Book, A Tech Love Story. It's not the tech that's the problem. It's the people manipulating the tech. So I guess you could say I'm an activist. I'm an activist for unaccountable power, not being unaccountable. Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish on Spotify. All right, so let's move on, Ed, if we could, to, to race relations and what has uh, been happening in this country for, for years, but is finally getting the deserved attention. Del Delta's hometown, obviously, is Atlanta. We had the killing of Rayshard Brooks there by police. You know, the, the second home, really, for Delta is, is my hometown, is Minneapolis. We saw the, the killing of George Floyd. There's the killing of Breonna Taylor in Louisville. And I wonder, as an executive of one of America's most iconic, biggest companies, how, how do you think about it when you consider that this is happening in America in 2020? Well, it's heartbreaking. It's, it's been eye-opening. Um, I think it's 
you know, we don't we don't look at those those killings in isolation. I think the the, the juxtaposition of the pandemic with the uh, the killings and and, and the, the social injustice and the systemic racism that that allowed enabled those killings to occur um, have to be seen together in concert, and it's amplified the voices particularly of our black and brown uh, colleagues as to what they've been living with, not for years, decades, centuries in, in society. And so I, th I think right now, uh, Poppy, as a, as a leader of a large uh, corporate company, you know, I, I heard from my people. I, I heard for the members of our, our black and brown community, our, our colleagues, uh, uh, almost half of our employees at Delta are either black or brown skinned and, you know, they're family, they're my family. And I, I have a responsibility to do a better job to understand the, the shoes they walk in and, and the world they see. And this has given light to us. And it's so, so while as, as big corporate leaders, we're prone to take action and we want to make change happen real time. And we want to undertake a, a lot of steps and we're doing all that. I think one of the most important steps is understanding right now and listening and, yeah. and, yeah. and, uh, Enabling our employees that to, to speak and, and to hear. I've, I've, I've spent a lot of time with, with our um, BOLD group. We've got a, it's a resource group within the company of our, our, our black colleagues. Uh, we've got a, you know, several thousand that are members, and I, I've been meeting with them uh, throughout to hear their stories, to hear their personal stories, and to really understand what we can be doing and the changes we can be making within the company to make, to make our company a, a better, more fair uh, place to work, uh, to attract talent, and to ensure they'll have every opportunity as any other employee across our, our company or community would have. So it's, it's been eye-opening. I, I think the pandemic has, has uh, enabled the, uh, the, 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 the vulnerability that we need to be sensitive to the, to the topic. And I, I can tell you this time really does feel different. Um, you know, we've been down this path in the past around diversity and inclusion. And living here in Atlanta, we pride ourselves as a city too busy to hate. Uh, yet, you know, there's so much more we need to do. Well, yet there's no hate crime, you know, legislation in the state of Georgia. I mean, that's something, for example, that you've been vocal on putting your and Delta's name and muscle behind to change things. Yeah, and, and the good news is it was passed recently. You, you wrote about the killing of George Floyd and, and Minneapolis. You said, injustice lives in plain sight. And you talked about your company using whatever means possible to create a better world. And, and that really can start for you within your company. So when you talk about thinking about change, right, um, and you talk about leadership, uh, and you talk about real opportunity for those black and brown employees you have, what do you think you can do to actually change the opportunities they have to rise higher up at the company, right? I know you have some black members of leadership, but if you look at your top 11, you don't have any black leaders sure. around you in the top circle, right? That's, Does that need to change? Absolutely. And, it, and it's my responsibility to make that change happen. Uh, you know, I think, I think our, uh, our black colleagues are, you know, feel like they've, um, their voices have been lost a bit in the broader diversity and inclusion discussion. Certainly minorities of all varieties, women uh, are all really important uh, uh, members to ensure that we're doing our very best to promote opportunity and equality and, 
and continue to be advocates for their their advancement in their careers and in our company. I, I think our if you disaggregate the facts though, uh, and you pull out what what the impact for our black skinned uh, and brown skinned employees are, they're lagging within the diversity uh, improvements that we've seen in the company, and yeah. and it took disaggregating the information to really see that. They knew that. Uh, it, it took George Floyd's killing for them to feel they had a voice strong enough to let us know that. And 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 because it, it takes courage to speak uh, and to and to go. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm I'm ashamed to say that you know I've not paid the level of attention to that component of the analysis that I need to pay. And I, I will pay extraordinary attention to it going forward and doing my very best to make sure that they're getting every opportunity for advancement. I need to own their advancement. And I yeah, I know we all in corporate America have things that we can do to to accelerate uh, progress. Uh, you know, I see what Ken Frazier and Merck's doing, for example, and I admire him. He's a, he's a great leader and a great man at a great time here. He's talked about, you know, how do we hire a million uh, black Americans into into positions of opportunity over the next decade. And I agree with that. And I, I need to own my share of that. And so it's a, it's a different tone today, Poppy. And our goal here is to make sure that tone doesn't change, you know, because, you know, there will be another news cycle. There will be another incident. There will be something else, you know, that will impact our business. But this is one that can't that can't be left behind. We've got to we've got to stand tall for our black colleagues and support them. You know, to, I, I interview a lot of CEOs, and to hear you use those words is striking because a lot of them, I, I don't think I've ever heard a CEO say to me, I'm ashamed, right? And that I could have, I should have done, I could have done so much more, I must do so much more. And you're absolutely right about Ken's leadership at Merck and his own story of why his opportunity and his rise and what really opened the door for him. Think how many more Ed Black CEOs there would be if there were more Ken Frazier stories. I mean, the fact that we're sitting here having this conversation when only four of the Fortune 500 CEOs are black, only four, and then there's a handful of women and the rest, frankly, look like you. Um, How do we change that quickly, right? Ursula Burns, former CEO of Xerox, told me you can change boards right now. You can bring more black members on boards and that will really accelerate things. Yeah, well, board board membership is one of those. We we do have two black members of twelve uh, on the Delta board. It's not enough. Uh, we will we will be recruiting more black uh, members undoubtedly in the next uh, couple of years. Uh, but I think change happens um, once there is real ownership of the issue. And you know, one of the things that I did uh, for myself as well as for Delta is I spent some time recently with Brian Stevenson, the uh, the author of Just is an amazing, just an amazing story, an amazing person. And um, I was really proud. The first trip he, he ventured, because you know, since, since he lives over in Montgomery, not too far away from Atlanta, and the first time that he's ventured out you know, during the pandemic and left, left his local community was to come over here to Atlanta and conduct a virtual town hall with me for all of our, our, all of our employees, you know, all 90,000 that we do online every week. I, I, I hold these town halls. And we talked a lot about you know, the, the, the amazing work he's doing. But one of the things that came from you know, his visit that still rings in my ears every single day is, is, this, is about truth-telling, is about you know, owning our past, owning our responsibility 
to make the world a better place. And this is, again, this is not something that goes back decades. It goes back centuries. And we have to learn our history as to how our black and brown skinned employees find themselves you know, dealing with systemic racism. And how, how, what does it mean to be an anti-racist uh, to ensure that we stamp out systemic racism? And you know, at Delta, we're a, we're a company of the South. They're a 95-year-old company. And we've got, I'm sure we've got a, a lot of, and you know, going back and understanding our ownership within Delta of, of not being the company we needed to be for, for, for our community and, and taking ownership of that. And not that you personally were there, but you personally can make a difference going forward. And, you know, he believes, and I, I, and I, I support him in this, that we're not going to see the real change happen until real ownership occurs. And ownership means owning the past, not just the future. That's, that's great that your employees got to hear from him because he is, he is a, a remarkable leader and his story is just, it's just, uh, it's unparalleled in so many ways. Uh, before you go, Ed, if, if we could just take a step back, because I know that this has got to be a moment you never thought you'd lead through, right? A CEO's sort of plan to lead a company doesn't generally include a global pandemic. And I'm interested in how your past, I mean, you're a child, you're one of nine, you're also a father of four children. I wonder how that has shaped your leadership and has shaped you in this moment. Well, I, I, yeah, this wasn't in the plan at the start of this year when we did our business plan to, uh, to, to address a pandemic. But the, you know, the, the, I, I guess my path um, has, has led me here to Delta for some reason. Uh, I'm in this role. I, I think back about our 95-year history and all the great leaders that we've had here at Delta. And I tell our team this because this is a time, Poppy, where, you know, it's easy to get um, – depressed, right? You, you look around, you see, you see a business decimated. And, and, and this is a time when, you know, one can look at your, your business as having come completely undone, or you can look at a time when this is, you know, your leadership has never been more important in the 95 year history of this company for a time such as this. And I choose that, the latter thinking that this, this is a privilege to lead this company through unprecedented times. And there's not been a more important time for our leadership to take, take the reins and, and to own the recovery and own the response and own the safety and the, the, the welfare of our customers and our people and lead our company through to a better place. And that's what motivates me every single day. And I, I guess you know, my background is you know, from rel- relatively humble, humble origin, a, a large family and my mom, uh, uh, was was my hero. She unfortunately died at the start of the pandemic, so I've had to deal with that personally as well. I'm very and, sorry, Ed. I, no, I that's okay. Know. No, that's okay. And and you know, I'm a uh, small blessing is that she died. You know, I can still be with her. You know, I can't imagine people that are going through the heartache of losing loved ones over the last few months who haven't been able to be with their loved ones. Uh, but the reality is that she's she's uh, she she put a lot of inspiration uh, into me, and I know. If she was here, she'd be uh, right alongside me, telling me, and, and I feel her, her strength to, to keep you know, powering through and bringing your people along and listening and, and leading and taking every day as, a, as an opportunity to make a difference. And that's, that's how I lead here at Delta. Well, then, you know, again, I'm, I'm so sorry for your loss of her, and I'm glad at least you could be with her. From what your mother did for you and your eight brothers and sisters, you know how hard, and from you having four kids, how hard parenting is, but especially how hard parenting is in the age of COVID, 
right? I mean, I yeah. try to do it every day with our two and four-year-olds. And again, I'm luckier than most, right? I have a job, I have an income, I have a, a spouse who helps equally. Can you, you know, if, if school doesn't start, Ed, in the fall and childcare doesn't open, a lot of parents are at the end of their rope and working parents also, and they don't know what they're, they don't know what they're going to do. And I wonder how you're thinking about that at Delta for your employees. Like, how can they work full time if they're lucky enough to have a job and take care of their children and school their children? Are you thinking about solutions, changes within Delta to, to help them? Extra pay, child care, stipends, I'm, you know, where is your head on that? Uh, we, we are, Poppy. Uh, fortunately, most of our employees uh, do, not have, do not have a desk job, right? They're, they're, they're employees that go out to the airports or fly. So they're not, they're, they haven't been homebound during the pandemic. We do have a you know, meaningful complement of our merit staff, about 10,000 people of the 90,000 that are, that are in, in desk jobs or office jobs and, and now have been sent home and, and are working from home. Uh, I'm very anxious to get them back. And I know uh, a big question is, is the start of the school year, which in the South happens uh, in the next few weeks. The first week of August, schools open down here. And there's a lot of uncertainty. And it's not just uncertainty with the school systems. It's uncertainty whether parents are going to trust the school systems to be able to send their, their kids back into, into those environments. So we're trying to do everything we can to be supportive to them. Uh, to the extent that we can reopen our campus, we're working hard to do that. I've set a goal to be back by 25% in our campus by you know, September, by Labor Day. Um, and so we're thinking hard about the changes we need to make in the uh, in the environment. But realistically, um, this is going to take at least a year before our campus gets back anywhere close to where it was. And we're having to, to, to make accommodations to bring people in potentially for a couple days a week and yeah. and uh, split, split schedules and try to be as accommodating as possible. The other thing that we're doing, as I mentioned, we've got a very large early retirement offering. That's true for our our, our merit team and, uh, and staff as well. And, you know, we have, we've got a meaningful number of those people that have decided this is the time for them potentially to exit uh, with Delta. Uh, they, they've had long careers, but it's time for them to be able to save another job at Delta and they're, and they're signing up to take those, those reductions, but it's a really hard time. Yeah. And it's I don't, be- I don't, have, I, I'm fortunate. My kids are, are grown. My youngest is 17. So I still have one at yeah. home. She's a senior in, uh, in high school and into her senior year. Uh, selfishly for me, uh, I'm lucky because I've got a desk job and a day job I go to, and I've been able to spend a lot more time with her than uh, than than ever. Uh, so, I've, so we've become you know uh, even closer through this. But it's a it's a real issue. Yeah, I think this economy and it's bigger than one company, but it's gonna and the government and, and the country is gonna have to figure out how do we value childcare. And how are we going to help those parents that have to go back to work physically or do it from home if, if schools and childcare aren't running at full capacity? What are we as a nation going to do? Because otherwise, it's untenable for 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 a lot for a lot of people. Just a few a few other questions, things people might not know about you before you go. I was struck that you know by many accounts you weren't meant to be you weren't going to be the CEO of Delta because you quit you left. So why did you quit? And then how did they bring you back? Well, as I said earlier, this is a company that's born of crisis, and we've had a number of crises. The, the prior to this, you know, the next biggest one certainly was 9/11, and it, it set the company on a on a tailspin that they did not recover from until 
they filed for Chapter 11. It was September of 2005. And I saw the decision making that was going on at the company at that time prior, you know, post 9-11. And I, I thought a lot of the decisions were, were the wrong ones. It was big pay cuts by the employees, big reductions of, of amenities from customers, scaled back service levels. Uh, it was a, it was a death spiral. And yeah, I spoke out a number of times to the management team at that point that I thought we were going down a, a wrong path and not you know, holding to the values of, of who we were as a company. Uh, and my voice wasn't being heard. And sometimes, you know, your your voice is only heard when you leave, right? When, when you're, you you got to let your feet take, you know, give uh, amplitude to your voice. And that's that's where I found myself. And I left. I didn't have a job. I just couldn't. I wasn't going to be around to watch this this great company uh, continue to make bad decisions. And, you know, within a year, I, I was back at Delta. Uh, Jerry Grinstein, who was the CEO at that time, you know, personally, you know, pulled hard to get me to come back. And what it did is it allowed me to, to implement and, you know, people knew what I stood for and, and who I was and make the kind of changes that I believe that we should make and haven't changed from that day. Well, there was also a moment if you fast forward in your leadership, and this is after the tragic shooting in Parkland and the students protesting that uh, pointed out that at the point, at that point, Delta was giving NRA members a slight discount and you stopped that. But then the NRA, according to the New York Times, worked with local politicians to end a tax break that would have saved you guys $40 million. Can you talk about that moment and what led you to say, quote, our values are not for sale, because you knew you were going to make some of your customers angry with that. Yeah, yeah. Well, we were, uh, first of all, I was unaware at the time that we had a tax break for the NRA. And uh, when, when it became known to me, in fact, how I found out was from the kids from Parkland. They, uh, they started emailing me and letting me know that we even had this. And, you know, I went to the NRA website, and sure enough, uh, Delta was there as a, as a not a sponsor, but, you know, there was a 10% or, you know, relatively modest discount to carry customers to their, to their annual meeting. And I said, we can't, we can't be doing that. We, this is not a, not a company that we, our brand uh, should be associated with, not to point at the NRA. It's just not, you know, consistent with the values of what Delta stands for. And as a result of that, we eliminated that, that discount, you know, relatively quickly, you know, within, within hours of, of, of understanding that. But we were also right in the front of, at the same time, uh, working with the Georgia legislature to pass a, a jet fuel tax exemption uh, that would save us $40 million a year at the, uh, at, at the local level here. And then when the uh, NRA caught wind that we were eliminating the discount, uh, they went to their, their supporters within the, uh, the Georgia uh, legislature and they wound up uh, eliminating those discussions about any tax break. And, um, you know, I had a lot of discussions with the governor at the time, Governor Deal and the, the, the head of the legislature. And I, I think everyone was pretty upset on lots of levels uh, at that point. There was a lot of frustration. But I told, I told the legislature, you have to make your decisions and we have to make our decisions. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, uh, you know, our, our, our values are not for sale. Uh, $40 million is not enough to change my view of what we ought to do with respect to discounts for NRA members. And, um, you know, the, the, the good news is that they, uh, they understood. And while we didn't get the tax break, you know, we've been able to reconcile, you know, our differences with the, with the state legislature. And I think we're in, we're in good partnership now. And sometimes it takes that. 
people to express themselves and what they believe. They they respect us. They respect me. They know they know how I feel of it, and I, I know how they feel. And you know, we're both you know in the same uh, in a state to to make the state a better place, and we're both trying to do our own to make that happen. Well, this segues well, I think, into the the last thing I wanted to ask you, Ed, which is about popularity contests because. You have said leadership is not a popularity contest. Did you learn that the hard way? I, I did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I tell I tell a lot of our young people coming up the the company that uh, you know it, you know it's it's, it, it's especially true today more than ever. You know, with social media and and the the uh, the politicization of, of almost any opinion and. The questions about you know whose facts are right, uh, uh, you know everyone wants to be liked, <clears throat> everyone wants to be heard, everyone wants to be followed, and the reality is is that you 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 can't always you know play a politician when you're in a big corporate leadership role. You have to do the right things for your customers, for your all your stakeholders, your shareholders, your employees, your government, your community, but as you can't make them all happy, and at times like this. Uh, more than ever, we're going to make decisions here, potentially around furloughs, potentially around you know government assistance, potentially around you know risks you want to take of flying into the virus. That you know somebody's going to be unhappy with you. And the reality, you just got to you got to be true to yourself. You got to be true to the values of your company, and you got to realize that making the best decision for everybody is not something that everyone's always going to agree with you on. And people that try to 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 become popular. You know, oftentimes I think people people don't see them as leaders. When you say take risks about flying right now in the middle of the in the middle of the pandemic, and I know you've said you know laid out how safe you think Delta planes are for flying right now. Given what we've seen happen in the last two weeks, Ed, and the acceleration of this this virus, especially in some states, would you advise people? to bring their families onto planes right now for anything, any travel that's non-essential? It absolutely is safe, Poppy. Uh, I have no question. If we thought it was not safe, we would not be flying. So unequivocally, yes, it is safe to, to fly on a Delta plane. It's safe to fly on an airplane uh, in the industry. The reality is people need to evaluate for themselves why they're traveling. Uh, they're not traveling to fly in an airplane. They're traveling for a different purpose to go to a theme park. Disney's opening this weekend. Uh, the casinos are open. They may they may need to travel to a loved one's side who's struggling in a in a in a difficult hospital setting. You know, there's a lot of different reasons why people travel. And uh, the one thing I've been very proud of the the men and women of Delta is that you know we've flown through the crisis primarily because we're an essential service. And I I can't tell you how many times I was stopped particularly in April and May when people were not traveling. But for those few that were thanking us for flying because they were getting to someplace they needed to get to for th that otherwise would have been a, a personal um, challenge for them if they were not able to fly to get there, whether it was again, the, uh, the, the, the bedside of a, of a sick parent, the, uh, the flying medical volunteers to the front lines of the pandemic to fight the virus. Uh, many, many different reasons why. And uh, I think everyone has to evaluate and, and make their own decisions. But if they, if they conclude that it's safe for them to be at the destination they're looking to get to, I tell you, air travel is the best way to get there. There's a lot of discussion. I know a lot of people are driving 
versus flying. And listen, there's a lot of there's a lot of risk around driving. We all know that you know, the, the roadways are not are not safer than the, the, the highways in the sky. It's not even close. And uh, the quality of the experience that we provide, our air quality, uh, the safety protocols, the blocked middle seats are all designed to to make certain that our customers are safe. And, you know, the, the answer to your question, is it safe? If it wasn't safe, you would expect that our employees who work on the planes, our flight attendants, our pilots and our airport agents would be getting sick. And the reality is, yes, we do have do have some of our employees coming down with COVID, but at levels at or below the national averages for anyone. And so if someone was actually operating in a unsafe environment, you'd expect your employees to come out and, and we're testing people so we know exactly where they are on the risk. So I, I can tell you with, with, without equivocation that it's absolutely safe to fly in an airplane from a public health standpoint. Safety is in our DNA, you know, flight safety is who we are, that's what we sell. And we're, we're as proud of the, the public uh, safety in terms of health as we are the physical safety of the flight. Ed Bastian, I'm very grateful for all of this time. It was a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much. I enjoyed being with Poppy. Thank you. Thank you, Poppy. Thank you so much for being with me for today's special bonus episode of Boss Files. We're taking a short break this summer, but we'll be back with more conversations about business and its role in shaping our lives very soon. Be sure to check out past episodes of Boss Files, as well as CNN's other great podcasts. All of them are at cnn.com slash podcasts. Boss Files is a production of CNN Audio. Felicia Patinkin is a senior producer. Raj Makija is the senior manager of production operations. This week's episode was produced by Haley Drasnan. And a special thanks to Megan Marcus, Ashley Luss, Courtney Coop, and Daniel Cantor from CNN Audio. And our production assistant, of course, Rebecca Vulgaris. As always, tell me what you think or just say hi on social media. You can find me at Poppy Harlow CNN. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.